0: Well, good morning, brothers and sisters. It's my privilege this morning to bring you God's word as we gather to worship our almighty God. If I haven't met yet, my name is Kelton. I also serve as one of the pastors here of Stafford Baptist Church. Please open your Bibles, if you would, with me to Genesis chapter 17. Genesis chapter 17, where we are going to be in 17.1 in all the way through 18.15. Genesis 17, 1 through eighteen fifteen blessing that leads to obedience. The story of Abram continues, picking up 13 years after what we studied last week. Before we read, though, uh, please pray with me for our hearing and the proclaiming of, of God's word. I, I would encourage you to, to make this prayer your own. And if you agree with me, join me in saying amen at the end. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we come to you this morning as we have sung to receive the food of your holy word. Speak, O Lord. We do not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from your mouth. So Lord, because you have all power, we ask that you would work your power by your Holy Spirit in our hearts to comprehend with all the saints the love of Christ. Work us in, work in us that which is pleasing in your sight. We pray, for the glory of Christ. Amen. Amen. Well, it's it's amazing the things that we do to try to get children to obey, the the rewards or deterrents we use to guide children's behaviors, and and not all children respond to the same. So teachers, parents, all kinds of caregivers have to be creative to get children to obey. Recently, my wife, Rebecca, was trying to to give our daughter, Walker, some some added incentive to obey by reminding her that later that day we would have a special treat for her. So so my wife, Rebecca, asked her to imagine what kind of treat might it be. Well, our daughter, Walker, suggested cake. Cake. Well, Rebecca replied, e- even better than cake. So Walker said, brownies. No, not brownies. And as it went on, the pinnacle of what Walker could imagine as the special treat at the end of her day was peppers. Peppers. She considered that the special treat that we were holding out for her at the end of the day was, was peppers. The answer we were looking for, of course, was, was ice cream. Like I said, motivating obedience in children can be highly individualized and, and complicated to, to get it right. If we knew, had known it was just peppers, it would have been a lot easier for us. <laughs> have you ever considered, though, how, how it is that God, God motivates our obedience? You know, God is, is owed the obedience of, of all people. All people are his creatures, his, he, the, their Creator. So he has, has all rights to demand what he will. And we have no right as his creatures to, to talk back to him. Well, in, in our passage this morning, God commands Abram's exact and immediate obedience. And Abram obeys. But in the midst of, of God's commands and Abram's compliance, we are reminded that, that God himself secures our obedience by, by his blessings. The blessings of justification, of a promised coming king, and of friendship with God. Our main idea this morning, a a one-sentence summary of the point of this passage is is this. Blessing from God leads to do obedience to God. Blessing from God leads to do obedience to God. We'll see this played out in, in four scenes. Our four points first keep my covenant that in verses 1 through fourteen. Second, a promised king in verses 15 through 21 third immediate obedience in verses 23 to 27 and finally friendship with god that in chapter 18 verses 1 through 15 keep my covenant a promised king immediate obedience and finally friendship with god We'll eventually read the entire passage, but, but we'll so in, in four parts. So start reading with me with Genesis chapter 17, verses 1 through 14. Genesis 17, 1. When Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am God Almighty. Walk before me and be blameless, that I may make my covenant between me and you, and may multiply you greatly. both he who is born in your house and he who is bought with your money shall surely be circumcised. So shall my covenant be in your flesh, an everlasting covenant. Any uncircumcised male who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin shall be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. The word of the Lord. Well, let's consider what God commands here in these first 14 verses. And our our first point this morning, keep my covenant. Keep my covenant. Moses begins there in chapter 17, verse 1, with a time marker. If you glance up to the last verse of chapter 16, verse 16, we ended that chapter after the mess of their impatience and sin and, and finally the birth of Ishmael, when Abram, it says, was 86 years old. Now here in chapter 17, he is 99 It's been 13 years. I'm sure things happened in those 13 years, but, but apparently nothing worth noting for Moses' purposes. All of, of this chapter 17 and, and the next three happened in the 99th year of, of Abram's life. Faith in the waiting. 13 years. Let me speak to our, our older members here. By the way, happy birthday to Minnie McDaniel, who turned 95 this week, only a few years behind Abram. To to Minnie and and to our older members, there is no aging out of usefulness to God. If you didn't know this about Minnie, she has nearly 900 caps that get distributed through a church to the homeless and to to missionaries for, for them to give away. God has a purpose for each of us, as long as we are alive, for us to serve him. I am so encouraged by the witness of our, our older members, who, like Abram here, are, are resolute, are steadfast in trusting God through the years, in obedience to him. Thank you for your example. Here in, in Abram's 99th year, God appears to him again in verse 1. God speaks to him in verse 1. In in introducing himself with a a new name. God Almighty. El Shaddai. As he introduces himself by this name. God is reminding Abram of one of his his attributes in particular. His complete sovereign ability. That he can do all things that he purposes. It says, Psalm 115 verse 3 says, Our God is in the heavens He does all that he pleases. He is almighty. So the slowness of 13 years and more for God to fulfill his promise to Abraham is not due to his lack of of power. Well, God Almighty commands Abram here to walk before him and be blameless. He is calling him to, to a continual life of relationship with him. And to be completely devoted and obedient to God. It might need some clarification. In verse two, he is not making a second covenant with Abram, in addition to the one he made back in fifteen. No, I think we should understand the, the promises of Genesis twelve, the ceremony of Genesis fifteen, and, and here the the, the uh, commands of, of chapter seventeen all are, are part of one covenant. Unfolding for us in these chapters. Well, in response to God's command, the promise that there would be a covenant between God and Him, well, in verse 3, Abram fell on his face. His response is, is worship. His heart, along with his body, bow in reverence before God Almighty. God Almighty, who is turning His power. To bless Abram. And to have covenant relationship with him. You know Abram has a a real 13 year old reminder. Of God's grace. His son Ishmael. That he doesn't deserve God to condescend. To be obligated to him in covenant. But God has. By grace. And that grace. Thrills his heart. In worship. How is your heart this morning, Christian? Thrilled by God's grace that He would condescend to be obligated to you too in covenant? To never turn away from doing good to you because of His love? Well, that deserves our worship this morning, Saints. To come to hear with love. What do we hear? Well, in verses 4 through 8, they're filled with God's gracious actions, his, his promises to Abram, secured by his power. Six times at least, God saying, I will, I will, I will. What God is, is promising to do for Abram and his descendants here. At the start, in, in verse 5, God gives Abram a, a new name. Abram means exalted father, but now his name shall be Abraham, which means a father of of a multitude. Now, whenever they speak Abraham's name, they will be reminded of God's grace, of his promises, his power. Even before he has this promised child, his name, father of a multitude. You know, we don't get new names when we become Christian, but we do get a new identity. Right, an identity that is given to us by God. We are no longer who we once were, and we are now part of a body. We have a communal identity. Once strangers now brought near, one in Christ. The height of, of this promise is is there at the end of, of verse eight. Right, what, what God promises, not only the land, but, but that He will be their God. This promise becomes a golden thread throughout the whole Bible, the hope of all of God's people. We so, see it show up in, in strategic times in the, the midst of the Old Testament. It's picked up in Exodus 6 7, when God promises to deliver His people from Egypt. He says, I will be your God. We see it at the heart of the promise of the new covenant in Jeremiah 31, 33. He says, I will be their God and they shall be my people. It's in fact the height of the hope of the last book of the Bible. In Revelation chapter 21 verse 3, when he speaks of the the new heavens and the new earth, he says, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. God is God. But the hope of the Bible is that God will be our God. The goal of of everything is that that God would be with us. Like Adam and Eve in the garden, but, but better. That he would make himself personally known in relationship with us. And in that last day fully known, he will be our God. So the question this morning as we consider this promise from God to to his covenant people, do you know him as your God? Not just as God, deity, but but your God. Is that the hope of of your life? And not just your life, but, but all of life after death. For this one to be with you forever as your God. Well, starting in verse 9, God begins to lay out what it would look exactly for Abraham to keep this, this covenant. What obedience he requires of Abraham and all of his offspring through their generations. It's plainly there in verse 10. This is my covenant that every male among you shall be circumcised. He goes on to specify that, that future children must be circumcised on the eighth day. Both those born in his house and, and the children of foreigners. You know God who is almighty has the right to demand his people what he will. There is per, nothing particularly moral about circumcision. It's, it's simply what has, God has commanded and therefore was to be obeyed. And God, God has this right simply because of, of who he is. And who we are as as his creatures. Friends, there is is no negotiating with him. Abraham doesn't come back with a a counteroffer. How about this for your covenant? No, God is not here applying for the vacant position of personal deity in Abraham's life. Trying to to measure up to, to his standards what God can and cannot demand from him. Biblical Christianity is not about finding a religious philosophy that that works for you. No, there is one true and living God, the God of the universe, and He commands what He will. Our choice is either to surrender totally on His terms or face the consequences when we don't. Notice, too, saints, that from the beginning... The nations were included. God has always included all peoples among the redeemed, among his covenant people. The assembly of the church is a people from all nations too. Because we have a citizenship from heaven. Well, in verse 11, God calls this circumcision a sign. A sign of the covenant. A sign, as, as God means it here, is... is 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 something that confirms or authenticates the, the truth or reality of something. We read of this in our scripture reading this morning in, in Romans, as, as the apostle Paul describes the sign as a seal. He wrote in Romans 4.11, Abraham received the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. So the point of circumcision here in Genesis 17, according to Paul, is to show that the forgiveness of sins, that justification, righteousness by faith was real in Abraham before the sign. Circumcision didn't cause Abraham to have righteousness. It didn't make him to, cause him to belong to God. No, it signified the reality in the heart of of a faith. That leads to righteousness. So even from the beginning, circumcision in the flesh was pointing to a reality in the heart. You know, in in his last days, Moses would speak to Israel. Telling them that after they had been exiled from the land, God would circumcise their hearts. Deuteronomy chapter 30 verse 6, Moses says, And the Lord your God will circumcise your heart. And the heart of your offspring, so that you will love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, that you may live. Do you hear in that? The greatest commandment? How is it that we love the Lord our God with all our heart and with all our soul? How is it that we we live? Well, it's by God circumcising not the flesh of our foreskin, but, but circumcising our heart. And this, the Lord will do. The Lord will circumcise your heart. It is by God's sovereign act on our hearts. Cutting away what is dead to give life and love. It's what God has already done to Abraham. And now gives to him in covenant. A sign in his flesh of the reality of what God has done in his heart. Well... Abraham responds by obedience. We'll return to that in verse 22. But first, God has something additional to say to, to Sarah. So let's read verses 15 through 21 and, and consider our second point, a promised king. A promised king. And God said to Abraham, as for Sarai, your wife, you shall not call her name Sarai, but Sarah shall be her name. I will bless her, and moreover, I will give you a son by her. I will bless her, and she shall become nations. Kings of people shall come from her. Then Abraham fell on his face and laughed, and said to himself, Shall a child be born to a man who is a hundred years old? Shall Sarah, who is ninety years old, bear a child? Then Abraham said to God, Oh, that Ishmael might live before you. God said, No. No. But Sarah, your wife, shall bear you a son, and you shall call his name Isaac. I will establish my covenant with him as an everlasting covenant for his offspring after him. As for Ishmael, I have heard you. Behold, I have blessed him and will make him fruitful and multiply him greatly. He shall father twelve princes, and I will make him into a great nation. But I will establish my covenant with Isaac, whom Sarah shall bear to you at this time next year. Well, Sarah, too, here gets a new name, a new identity. The, the meaning of her name doesn't change much. Both mean princess. But that, that, that name highlights something about her, that, that she has royal blood. We saw this back in verse 6, speaking to Abraham. But, but again, it's reiterated. Kings of peoples shall come from her, in verse 16. It's here in in these verses that we know for certain that Sarah will be the mother of the promised son. And God gives the the name of that son, Isaac. And that he would be born, in verse 21, this year. Isaac means he laughs. Maybe he's referring to, to Abraham's laughter in verse 17. Or maybe it's even a reference to Sarah's laughter. Or maybe Isaac's coming joy himself. Well, whatever the name, the reason for the name, his name is, is about their joy, their laughter. Abraham is, is so amazed here that, that he even pleads for God to, to maybe instead bless Ishmael. Right? He, he can't believe that, that someone who's nearly 100 years old would have a child. Well, God hears Abraham. He does give Ishmael some promises. He will bless him, he says, and make him fruitful. He shall father 12 princes. He will be made into to a nation, a great nation. But no, God's covenant will come through this son of promise, Isaac, and his descendants after him. And you know how the story goes? In time, the covenant will pass from, from Isaac Isaac. To his son Jacob who also gets a new identity the name Israel and then one of his sons his son Judah is given the promise in Genesis 4910 the scepter shall not depart from Judah nor the rulers staff from between his feet until tribute comes to him and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples so this ruler this king Sarah's promised king will now come through Judah And the story goes on, and Judah's son's son's son will be the greatest king of Israel, David. And he will receive a promise that that his son will always be on the throne. And the story goes on. In time, the son of Abraham, the son of Judah, the son of David, comes. Jesus, the king of kings, the Lord of lords, to whom shall be the obedience of the peoples. And his kingdom is everlasting, his reign eternal. What we're seeing here in Genesis 17 16, this promise of a king is, is God promising from this line will come the one through whom the kingdom of heaven will come. You know, Christian, Jesus came once. Born not much like a king, was he? In a stable, born to die. He lived as a carpenter's son, as a servant. He died a humiliating death. He came first to be our sacrifice for our sins, to to suffer punishment that our sins deserve. Mockingly crowned with a a crown of thorns. All this to secure the forgiveness of our sins. But, But we remember that he will come again as king. To judge the living and the dead, who John sees in Revelation 19, verses 12 through 16, as, as this He says, His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems, and he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth come a sharp sword, with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with an iron rod. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. We have this picture of Jesus, the conquering king, in his second coming. What is just a shadow here in Genesis 17. But we see one day the king of kings and lord of lords will come. To whom Paul says every knee should bow. Even Abraham's and every tongue confess that he is lord. To the glory of God the father. So Genesis 17 is is the beginning of a plan of redemption of a king who will come. It isn't just the 25 years that Abraham has to wait for his son Isaac, but the millennia that we have to wait until the son is born, Jesus, and millennia more until his kingdom is consummated in his second coming. Well, why these promises? Well, God is using promises like these to to motivate Abraham's obedience, to motivate our obedience as well as we await the coming king, far better than, than ice cream or peppers. Blessing from God leads to do obedience to God. In thinking about this second coming of Christ as king, 2 Peter verses, or chapter 3, verses 11 and 13 exhort Christians this way. He says, Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God? But according to his promise, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Did you notice twice in those verses, Peter talking about our our waiting? How ought we live? Lives of of holiness and godliness, of, of, of obedience, waiting for the return of the king. Where he will be our God. Where we will have righteousness, not by faith, but by perfection. So how often, Christian, do you think of the return of Christ As king, as conqueror, to begin his eternal reign. How might thinking of that motivate you to live in obedience as you wait like Abraham and Sarah? You know, that that obedience is what marked Abraham in light of the promises that, that he received. That's exactly what happens next in our text. Let's let's read the next part in verses 20 through to 27. And our our third point, immediate obedience. Immediate obedience. He was motivated by these promises to obey. Read with me starting in verse 22. When he had finished talking with him, God went up from Abraham. Then Abraham took Ishmael, his son, and all those born in his house or bought with his money... Every male among the men of Abraham's house, and he circumcised the flesh of their foreskins that very day, as God had said to him. Abraham was 99 years old when he was circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin. And Ishmael, his son, was 13 years old when he was circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin. That very day, Abraham and his son Ishmael were circumcised. And all the men of his house, those born in the house and those bought with money from a foreigner, were circumcised with him. Well, as soon as God is done speaking and leaves, what does Abraham do? He obeys. Immediate obedience. Did you notice as we read how thorough his obedience was? Not just Ishmael in verse 23, but all, it says, born in his house, or bought, Every male circumcised that very day as God had said to him. God commands Abraham obeys. It's reiterated for us again in in verse 26, that very day. And in verse 27, all the men from his house and those bought from a foreigner. The clear emphasis in these verses, what what we should understand is that, that his obedience was immediate and exact. He wasn't approximate or dawdling in his obedience. He acted right away and completely It's as as immediate as your hand moves when your synapses fire. Immediate obedience. You know, God didn't have to ask him twice. It was simply as God said to him. And so it was. And let's not brush over it here. This is a costly obedience. There's a later story in Genesis 34 when a, a whole community is circumcised. And we're told that they're so sore, still on the third day, that they're easily defeated in battle. Just wiped out. And even further, he is taking a knife here to the very organ by which his promised child would come. This promise doesn't seem to make much sense. In other words, not only is his obedience immediate and exact, but it was painful and dangerous by faith Christian would that describe your obedience immediate and exact costly and dangerous by faith or are you obedient only when it's cheap and convenient and only uh, uh, close enough only when i completely understand why and what will be the result On my terms. You know, I think we often have our own lists of acceptable disobediences. Things that we tolerate. We forget the true nature of sin. That sin is wickedness. That disobedience is rebellion against God. And and a spiritual cancer that, that will destroy us. We excuse, we tolerate our ingratitude our discontentment, our complaining, our pride, rather than immediate, exact, costly and dangerous obedience. So we have to wonder, what could motivate that kind of obedience? Well, it's blessing. Blessing from God that leads to do obedience to God. Remember here, Abraham is not earning God's blessing... Or righteousness. He already has that. He has it by, by God's promise through his faith. Genesis 17 is after Genesis 12. The promises when Abraham was a nobody without a thought of God. Genesis 17 is after Genesis 15 when Abraham receives righteousness by faith. Genesis 17 is after the mess of of Abraham's sin in in Genesis 13 and Genesis 16. God commands obedience in response to what he has already done. And it's always been that way. The imperatives to Abraham, keep my covenant. The imperatives to us, to obey, always flow out of the indicatives. What I have done, what I have done, What I have done. God doesn't use blessings like a carrot on a stick. The reward for our obedience. No. The motive for our immediate and exact. Our costly and dangerous obedience by faith. Is not to earn or keep God's blessing. It flows out of them. We sang earlier. How marvelous, how wonderful is my Savior's love for me? What do you want to do after singing something like that? There were no commands in that song, what we must do in order to get His love. But the response of those who know how marvelous, how wonderful is my Savior's love for me is to obey. Christians are motivated by grace. The inexhaustible, lavish gift of God's sovereign, marvelous, wonderful love, especially in our justification. You know, our justified standing before God, our, our being declared righteous before Him, not because of anything we've done, but simply because we have faith, is the foundation of, of all of our, our thinking, our feeling, and our, our doing, our obedience. You know, our, our default, default mode as people, our natural way of thinking and feeling and doing is that God is not for us. That naturally we, we will be pulled back into obeying God as a way to earn His love, to get His love. So I wonder, Christian, is your obedience to God a delight? Are you motivated to serve God out of thankfulness for what He has done? His marvelous, His wonderful love in His Savior. Or or is your obedience an attempt to get Him to bless you? To get Him to save you? You know, only one man's obedience brings salvation. It's not Abraham's, and it's certainly not yours. It's certainly not mine. Romans 5.19 For as by the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, that is, in Adam, so by the one man's obedience the many will be made righteous, that is, in Christ. Christian, we are made righteous, not by our obedience, but by Christ for us. No matter how many good works you do, no matter how much you try to obey, it will never be enough. Did you remember the threat that we read in verse 14? Those who don't obey will be cut off. They have broken his covenant. Well, Isaiah 53, 8 tells us that at the cross, what happened was that Jesus instead was cut off for us in our place. He was cut off for our breaking of the covenant. Isaiah 53.8 says, Who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgressions of my people? Jesus received the punishment that we deserve to be cut off. So that by his obedience we can be brought in. Christian, our obedience does not save. It is the necessary evidence of your salvation. But you are justified by faith because of the obedience of another in your place. Jesus Christ. And the gift of his obedience is now fellowship with God. When brought in, we enjoy intimacy with God our Father, and even His friendship. Let's read the last part of our passage in chapter 18, verses 1 through 15, and our fourth point, friendship with God. Friendship with God. Starting in chapter 18, verse 1. And the Lord appeared to him by the oaks of Mamre, as he sat at the door of his tent in the heat of the day. He lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, three men were standing in front of him. When he saw them, he ran from the tent door to meet them, and bowed himself to the earth, and said, O Lord, if I have found favor in your sight, do not pass by your servant. Let a little water be brought in, wash your feet, and rest yourselves under the tree, while I bring a morsel of bread that you may refresh yourselves, and after that you may pass on, since you have come to your servant. So they said, Do as you have said. And Abraham went quickly into the tent to Sarah and said, Quick, three sillas of fine flour, knead it and make cakes. And Abraham ran to the herd and took a calf, tender and good, and gave it to a young man who prepared it quickly. Then he took curds and milk and the calf that he had prepared and set it before them. And he stood by them under the tree while they ate. They said to him, Where is Sarah, your wife? And he said, She is in the tent. Why did Sarah laugh and say, Shall I indeed bear a child now that I am old? Is anything too hard for the Lord? At the appointed time next year, I will return to you. About this time next year, and Sarah shall have a son. But Sarah denied it, saying, I did not laugh, for she was afraid. He said, No, but you did laugh. Well, it's an interesting story. If you started in verse 2, it might be especially confusing. Three men appearing and eating a meal with Abraham here in the middle of of the wilderness. But Moses helps us with the headline in verse 1. This is God appearing to Abraham again. The Lord appeared to him by the oaks of Mamre. We learn in chapter 19, verse 1, that the other two men with him are are angels. Here we have another theophany. Theophany an appearance of God himself as he has done to, to Hagar before. Abram, as Abraham, as he, he welcomes these guests, is, is urgent with his wife and the young man to, to make these men a, a lavish meal, cake from seven quarts of flour, a whole calf with, with curds and, and milk. And they, they eat. After eating, in, in verse 9, the, the Lord speaks. Verse 10, Yahweh says again that This, in a year, Sarah will have a child. Sarah overhears from the tent and and laughs to herself. But again, as evidence that this is the Lord who is speaking, as Moses says, God knows what Sarah says to herself in the tent. Verse 14 is a wonderful question, reminding us of, of God's title, God Almighty. Is anything too hard for the Lord? No, even though Sarah is is worn out, past menopause, she will have a child. This is not too hard for the Lord. This is the Lord who made the heavens and the earth from nothing but a word. He can easily bring a child even where there are no eggs. Deliverance from that sin. Maybe salvation for that sinner. Maybe relief from that pain. Is anything too hard for the Lord? It isn't. Again and again in the book of Genesis, we are confronted with the hope that God is able. Even when He doesn't, He can God, not chaos, is in control. Nothing is too hard for the Lord. But I I want to point out why I think this story is is here. I think what we have here in the first 15 verses of of chapter 18 is a covenant meal. This is an expression of the intimacy that, that Abraham has in covenant with his God. You know, later in Scripture... Both Isaiah and and James will call Abraham a friend of God. And friendship in his culture was was expressed most appropriately in in hospitality, the kind of of meal that we see here. And, And something similar happens after other covenants as well. You know, after God makes a covenant with his people at Mount Sinai, what happens? Well, in Exodus 24, God invites Moses up the mountain with the elders. They promise to obey what God has commanded in his covenant. We will be obedient, they say. They see the God of Israel, and in verse 11, they beheld God and ate and drank. They celebrate the covenant with a meal, a meal with God. How is it that Jesus celebrated the new covenant in his blood? With a meal, what we now call the Lord's Supper? What do we await on that last day? Well, Revelation 19 tells us what we look forward to is the marriage supper of the Lamb. The meal of the covenant. What what Jesus says he will not eat or drink again until he he does when the kingdom of God comes. When our intimacy with God is, is full and final. When God himself will be with us to be our God. When all that we have Waited for will be fulfilled. So I I think this meal here in Genesis 18, Abraham with the Lord, is is a preview of, of that day, as is every reminder as we eat of it in the Lord's Supper. By this covenant, God's covenant with Abraham, he has friendship with God. And we too, in the new covenant, in Christ's blood, we have friendship with God today. But that day that we look forward to, we will know fully, even as we have been fully known. Perfect, unhindered intimacy with God and one another. Let me conclude, brothers and sisters, reading of this hope from Isaiah 25. And as I read, I encourage you to direct your hope to that day when friendship with God and one another will be unhindered forever. This is our God, church. Let us be glad and rejoice in his salvation. Let's pray. Father, you are our God. We are your people. Not by our obedience, but by your gracious blessings. By your promises, by the gifts of your grace and justification by faith. Lord, that we have all of your blessings, not because of our deserving, but because of your love. Father, we sing this morning how marvelous, how wonderful is our Savior's love for us. Lord, we pray that you would, in his love, teach us full obedience, holy reverence. The reverence that is due for your holy name, because of all the blessings that we have secured for us in Christ. It's in his holy name that we pray this, to the glory of Of God our Father we pray, amen.